If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The fate of the princes in the tower is one of the most enduring historical mysteries. What really happened to two young boys in the summer of 1483 when they vanished from the Tower of London without a trace? Over the years, rumour flourished with one persistent theory being that Richard III orchestrated the death of his nephews. But there were also stories of survival and pretenders to the throne who claimed to be Edward and his younger brother, Richard Duke of York. Philippa Langley, who famously played an important role in locating the grave of Richard III in 2012, has spearheaded a large-scale investigation into this fascinating cold case and joined Rebecca Franks to discuss what she discovered. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. The Missing Princes Project explores one of history's most tantalising unsolved mysteries, the question of what happened to the two young princes, Edward and Richard, in the summer of 1483 when they went missing from the Tower of London. Could you, to start with, tell me about the background to your interest in this story? I've been researching the later part of the Wars of the Roses and specifically the life and times of Richard III. And I think this story has always been wrapped up in that. So it's always been there from the get-go. But my focus has always been on other things. But I think it was events leading up to sort of the reburial of Richard III that sort of changed all of that. The project is a large-scale project that began in 2016. How many people have been involved and who are they And what has the project set out to do? Yeah, the project has got over 300 members from around the world and it's set out to search archives again around the world and to see what we could find for this period of history. One of the distinctive features of the Missing Princes project is that it's used, to quote the book, the same principles and practices as a modern police inquiry. Could you explain what those principles are and why you've decided to approach this piece of history in that way? 
I went and asked the advice of investigative specialists, of the police, and they were very clear that you need a cold case investigation methodology to ensure that you don't miss anything. And I think the methodology that was absolutely fascinating that they told me to follow and which we have followed is that firstly, follow the money and follow the law. So investigate all of the day-to-day administrative accounts because these were not written for public consumption. And this is what the police do when they're starting an investigation because this is where they begin to find the truth of what it is they're looking for and offers them new lines of investigation by looking into these documents. So that was key. But then they also said, you have to consider everything. You can't close anything off. You can't prejudge. You can't think that you know what it is you're going to find. You have to completely start with a clean sheet. And the third thing they said was that you have to discard all traces of hindsight and you have to start working in the present, their present So you have to, wherever possible, you've got to try and work through it second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And by doing that, you've then got to form timelines and person of interest files. For any name that crops up, you've got to have a person of interest file. And then you have to cross-reference and check and double-check and triple-check all of these as you go to make sure that your timeline is accurate. So it really was the forensic deep dive at all times. And do you feel that that approach was very different to a traditional historical approach? I think yes and no. I think it's evidence-based approach, which I think is really important. The influence for the Missing Princes Project was the Looking for Richard project, because this was an evidence-based research project that was looking at all information that we possibly could in terms of Richard III's death and burial. Now, what we were dealing with with that was there was a later story, a 17th century sort of rumour, hearsay and gossip, that Richard had been thrown into the River Saw. But this had been repeated in the history books So by the time I was searching for Richard III, everyone said, well, he's in the River Saw. So the search was sort of seemed as a bit quixotic and that it wouldn't be successful. So in terms of the Looking for Richard project, we used the evidence-based research methodology because there was no evidence for that particular story. So that was a huge influence to make sure it was evidence-based. But I think there was then a catalyst and the catalyst happened during the reburial week for Richard III. And it was a full page article in the Daily Mail newspaper. And the headline said, I'm paraphrasing, I I haven't got it in front of me, something along the lines of, it's mad to make this child killer a national hero. But then what the article did was it cited all of the traditional narrative around this story, but there was no evidence in it. So I thought, okay, maybe this story is true, 
But you have to, once again, you've got to go in with an evidence-based analysis and methodology to look at this question. So literally by the time I'm on the train leaving Leicester after the reburial of Richard III, I'm putting together this new evidence-based research. Some sceptics might say, given your personal connection and all the work that you have done with Richard III, that it would be hard for you to be that impartial investigator. Was that a question you really had to confront and explore for this project? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. It was something I had to come to terms with in my own mind. Because the story of, of Richard murdering the two princes is, is so incredibly powerful. It's so enmeshed in our psyche, if you like, thanks to Shakespeare's famous play and Thomas More's literary narrative, that I had to say to myself, it's about finding whatever we find. Again, you look at everything, it's the clean sheet. So for me, the reburial of Richard III was, was an attempt to make peace with the past. But I think because of this article in the Daily Mail, it was very clear that this debate was still ongoing. So for me, in order to lay Richard III to rest, we had to see if we could answer this question either way, because then the debate is finished, we now know, and then it's sort of job done, if you like. I also contacted a number of people in the Richard III Society because I said to them, look, I'm undertaking this new project and I don't know what I'm going to find. And they, across the board, said the same thing. They said, Philippa, you know, we are a research organisation. Everything we do is research-based. We look for new research. So whatever you find, either way, it's going to move our knowledge forward. What would it have taken to have made you think that Richard III had been guilty? You have to look at the totality of evidences that have been uncovered now. And I think that's what I was looking for. I was looking for something in the record somewhere that said the boys died or that the recorded pious prayers or observances for the soul or said God rest their soul or God rest you know, his soul, if talking about one of the princes... And in those highly religious times, that should have been there. Because when you look at that period in terms of talking about Edward IV, it clearly mentions God rest his soul every time he's mentioned. But I think it defied all kind of expectations, if you like, because all of the day-to-day -day administrative accounts, and this is kind of the first big discovery of the project, is that it's business as usual. You can just see that when either of the boys are mentioned in the administrative accounts, it talks about them in terms of them being alive. But I think what was the one of the most important lines of investigation was the Battle of Bosworth, because this is when the worlds of Henry Tudor and Richard III collided head on. So I had to do a forensic investigation of what happened at this time, using all of the contemporary records that I could find around this period of time. And I think what was huge by doing this was it discovered a number of things. The first one was the entry point for the story of the murder of the boys into England, arrived with Henry Tudor and his invasion force, his French invasion force. This is where we first see it in English accounts and documents. It's here now. 
But then what Henry himself did, again, defied what he should have been doing because he was heading to London when Richard III intercepted him and cut him off at Bosworth. So you can understand that his forces are heading to London because whoever holds the capital holds the kingdom. So it was of great necessity for him and his forces to get to London. But he doesn't. He pauses. He stops. And you can see that he's now got significant Yorkist prisoners that are interrogated. And then Henry undertakes searches in the north. So he sends out these messengers everywhere. They're trying to get intelligence. And what we can see is that he's trying to get hold of the Yorkist heirs, the Yorkist children. And he's looking for the boys at the same time. So with those two discoveries, with being unable to find any reference to the boy's death in the contemporary records from Richard's reign, and seeing the entry point for the story of murder coming with Henry and his French foreign invasion force, seeing those two things, it was then very clear that we had to widen the investigation, consider survival, because as we know, all of the contemporary and near-contemporary sources for this period and chronicles, they also talk about the potential survival of the boys. But we also had to go into the reign of Henry VII, to the end of his reign and to see what was happening then. And it was just as I was doing that, and just as we were extending it, that suddenly the archival discoveries in Europe started to flood in. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Let's turn to those now. So you talk about those in, in, in your book, which is the results of phase one of, of this project. There is a phase two. 
could you give me the sort of headlines? What have you discovered about the fate of, of Edward and Richard from these archival discoveries? In terms of Edward V, there was the most remarkable archival discovery made in the archives in Lille in northern France. And it was made by Albert Jean de Roy, who's a member of the Dutch research group. And what he discovered was a receipt for King Maximilian I, who was one of the leading players in terms of Europe, a very, very powerful man who went on to become the Holy Roman Emperor. And this receipt, again, it's following the money, following the law, this accounting receipt was lost in a sheath of papers that Albert was just looking through. And what is remarkable about this receipt is that it's for King Maximilian, who has collected weapons in June 1487. The receipt is his payment of these weapons, and it's 400 pikes, so weapons for elite troops. And he's paying for them. But it tells us who he's paying for these weapons for. And it says that it's a nephew of Margaret of Burgundy. It's the son of King Edward IV, who was expelled from his dominion. So it's very clearly telling us that this was Edward V and that the invasion of 1487 and the coronation that took place in Ireland in 1487 was for a King Edward, as we know, but we now know that this was for the eldest son of Edward IV, King Edward V. But I think what is extraordinary about this receipt is its veracity. We've had this checked by numerous experts, but it's signed by King Maximilian's secretary, Florence Horvel. And he's saying that everything that I've written here for King Maximilian paying this receipt, and the receipt is dated the 16th of December 1487, that all of this information is correct. And it names, I think there's about 14 key individuals from Maximilian's court and the court of Burgundy at this time in this receipt. So the secretary says it's all correct and this is accurate. But then it goes further than that. There's another section of the receipt underneath where two other members, leading members of Maximilian's court, who are the head of his artillery, are again signing it and saying, we also confirm that all of the details in this receipt and the king's collection of the pikes and his payment for these pikes is accurate and correct. So it's quite an astonishing find. And this was made in May 2020 by Albert Janderoy. And does the fact that people thought Edward was alive actually prove he was alive? Obviously, they believe that all this information is correct. Is there any doubt I haven't found any information that tells us Edward V has died. There's absolutely nothing. In the seven-year investigation, I've been unable, none of us have been unable to locate anything that tells us that. I think one of the, the important things to remember is that this individual was later, by November 1487, was given the name of Lambert Simnel, a 10-year-old common boy who was the son of a joiner, tailor, baker, shoemaker. They weren't really quite sure. But what we know about Edward V at this time is he was 16. 
So he was of the right age to lead an army into battle. And also, in terms of his coronation in Christchurch Cathedral in Ireland, we know that one of the leading players there was John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln. And John de la Pole, we now know, had been named as Richard's heir during his reign because Richard's son and heir had died, Edward of Midland had died. So you've basically got King John II of the House of York sitting in the audience to watch this individual being crowned, which is the most holy ceremony of the church at that time. Lincoln was the eldest son of the eldest daughter of Richard, Duke of York. So he was the heir to the throne. But yet we are meant to believe, according to the later Tudor stories, that he was happy to sit there and let a common boy, a 10-year-old boy, be crowned in this highly religious and most holy of ceremonies. So I think, again, it's the amount of evidences that we've uncovered, that the totality of evidences that now tell us the story that we have that's unfolding, and that it was Edward V. Because Edward V at that time was the only member of the House of York who then had a greater claim to the throne than John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln. So then what the people's individual's actions were then begin to make sense. Then it adds up. So the Lille receipt is this proof of life that, that he was still alive. And then we can make the connection to this already existing known story of this pretender to the throne, Lambert Simnel, who was later shown at the time, it was thought to be an imposter. So you reject that theory that, that Lambert Simnel was the imposter. Yeah, I do, because we've now got proof of life for Edward V. Everything else that we've been able to discover, again, in the timelines, the person of interest files, the referencing, the cross-checking, the double-checking, everything now tells us that he was the person who was crowned in Dublin on Sunday, the 27th of May. 1487. And I think one other thing I'll chuck into the mix here is in Henry VII's Parliament, they also changed the date that he was crowned. They changed it to Thursday, the 24th of May. And there's a big reason why they did that, because Sunday, the 27th of May, was the holy day of the week. At the end of the 15th century, 16th century, coronations always took place on a Sunday the holy day of the week. But there's an even bigger important thing that they're missing here is because that particular Sunday, the 27th of May, was a very special day in the religious calendar. It was the Sunday before Ascension. And this was the same Sunday that Elizabeth Woodville had been crowned when she was made queen 22 years earlier. So what we can see is Edward V and the Yorkists are sending out a very big message this is your son. This is Edward V. The next key document you discuss in relation to the younger of the princes, Richard, is a manuscript from archives in the Netherlands, which was actually known about, I believe, in the 1950s, but dismissed. Could you tell us what that manuscript is and what happened to it the first time round? Yeah, this is a semi-legal document, which is a witness statement, if you like. It's written in the first person and it's Richard, Duke of York's story. He's telling you what happened to him 
from leaving sanctuary in Westminster in 1483 to arriving at the court of his aunt Margaret of Burgundy in 1493. So it's a 10-year account of everything that happened to him. This was discovered in the 1950s, but it was dismissed by a Dutch historian who said, oh, this is nothing. This is just the story of the false York. He was an imposter. So it's not an important discovery and you don't need to investigate any further. So it was just put back into the archive. But then in November 2020, the lead member of the Dutch research group, a lady called Natalie Neyman Bleekendal, she was in the archive, the Gelderland archive in Arnhem in the Netherlands, where she came across this. And it really is uh, astonishing. And so when you found this manuscript, what convinced you, what was the evidence that you could take this as authentically the account of what had happened to Richard after, well, before and, and then after he left the tower in 1483? Firstly, the information that was in the manuscript itself, but secondly, the checks that we did on it afterward. But in terms of the information that's in the manuscript, it's a four-page manuscript and it goes into detail after detail after detail after detail about his story. And one of the things that the police specialists have continually told me is that if somebody is lying, if somebody doesn't want you to know what's going on and what's happening, they're always very loose about details. They're very casual. They don't want to give you specifics that you can look into. But if somebody is telling you the truth, they will give you detail after detail because what they're basically saying is, this is the real deal. I'm the real deal. This is my story. I'm naming names. I'm giving you places. I'm telling you exactly what happened to me. Go and investigate. Go and ask them because this is what happened. And by telling his story, Richard names, I think there's about 19 or 20, I think it's 20 individuals he actually names from this period, key members of the Yorkist court, key people who would have been at the Tower of London at the time. And he also gives us 19 places where he's been. And then what happens in terms of later discoveries? And this is where We've got Natalie Nyman comes in again, but also one of the members of the Dutch research group called Jean Roostra. He then goes into all of the domain accounts, again, the administrative day-to-day accounts in Holland, looking for this individual and trying to see if he's given any other names. Can we find the name Perkin Warbeck, which is what he was later given by the Tudor authorities? But he can't find this name anywhere. And he's been searching for years now. The only name that he can find is Richard, Duke of York, or the son of Edward IV, or the nephew of Margaret of Burgundy. The second part to this question is the checks that we made in terms of the authenticity of this document. Because you have to check, is this too good to be true? Is this so good? that it's a forgery. So what we did, obviously we knew that the the archives had looked into it because it's in their archives and it's there, but we had to go back to the archives 
And we had to say, okay, look, we think this document might be important. Therefore, we need you to run checks on it again. We need you, all of the specialists in that archive, run your checks. So they got all their specialists to look at it and they confirmed that it's absolutely of this period. The writing is correct. The watermarks are correct. The paper is correct. The grammar is correct. The language is correct. And they signed an authenticating document for us to confirm their opinion on that. But then because we're making a television documentary, there's a number of historians involved in the documentary making. So they said, okay, well, look, that's great, but we have to go further than that. That's just not enough for us. We have to give it to independent specialists. All of the fines we have to give to independent specialists. So they then brought in leading specialists. They brought in Dr. Yanina Ramirez, Professor Henrique Lanneman, which you'll see on the screen. But then they also brought in leading specialists in terms of the Gelderland manuscript in particular. And there was a specialist in Brussels who's a leading expert in Middle Dutch. But then they also went to Dr. Andrew Dunning, who's an international specialist in this area and based at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. So you can see we've done so many layers of checks, double checks, triple checks, that you have to when you're finding new discoveries so that we can now, yes, sit here and say that it's absolutely authentic and all of the discoveries are real. They've all been verified. The information that this manuscript now gives us, how does that advance our understanding of what happened to Richard? It's a proof of life. So it gives us his story. It tells us that he was sent to safety. He was sent to the continent. And this was done by John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, with two Ricardian Yorkist retainers to, to watch him and look after him. And he was sent there very clearly for a number of years because the two retainers with him were told that he has to stay there for a number of years. So that's a proof of life so that we now know that this individual who was given the name Perkin Warbeck later by the Tudor government, we know that this individual, he was also called Osbeck, Ubeck, Steinbeck, de Verbeck. Again, there's conflicting accounts, but he was said to be the son of a Ternay boatman from Ternay in France. So we now know that story is false. And I think there's further evidences in terms of that that we've uncovered in the archives in Europe. And Natalie Nyman, again, she rediscovered in the Dresden archive in Germany that there is, again, it's a receipt, a pledge payment, you know, follow the money, follow the law for this individual who's calling himself now Richard of England because he's the son of Edward IV and he's now claiming the throne. And it's a document where he has signed it. He's signed it as Richard of England with his royal monogram. And it also had a royal seal as well, perfectly intact, which had the royal arms of England, the closed crown of a king. But it also had the Yorkist symbols on it and a royal R at the bottom. So this was quite remarkable here because this is a receipt and pledge payment for 30,000 florins, in fact, to a leading member of the Burgundian court, Duke Albert of Saxony. So that was another remarkable find by Natalie. 
But then there was another find, and this time it was made by Zoe Mauler of the Dutch Research Group. And what Zoe discovered was in the Austrian State Archive. She discovered a letter from Maximilian to Henry VII, where he's mediating between Henry and Richard, Duke of York, the son of Edward IV. And he says to Henry VII that there are so many signs that confirm that this person is who he said he, he is. He is the son of Edward IV. And he then goes on to say that these signs can't be counterfeited. And he talks about three birthmarks, three body marks, and says that it's his eye, his mouth, and he's got a mark on his thigh and says that this is who this person is because of these signs that can't be counterfeited. So again, we've got all of these documents arriving from Europe, which are confirming who this person is. And not just saying, because we think he's in, it's actually giving you evidence after evidence after evidence. So it's hugely compelling. And Again, it kind of makes sense because if the elder boy survived, then you have to think, okay, why would they kill the younger boy who wasn't really important in the story? It was always Edward V who had been proclaimed king in the early days. So he was always the heir in terms of Edward IV. So I think those numbers of proofs of life, that was the most enormous step forward for the investigation and in terms of what we'd already discovered from Richard's reign. Is there an argument then, if the contention is that both princes survived and, and that's what these documents show, and then we can connect those to the two pretenders to the throne, Lambert Simnel and, and Perkin Warbeck, is there an argument that actually it would have made no sense for Richard III to have let them survive because they did then try to to claim the throne? Yes, but again, you have to go back to their present, to their moment, and you have to remember that they were declared illegitimate by the three estates of the realm and by parliament. So they had no claim to the throne. As bastards, you can't claim your inheritances. But for sure, in terms of Richard, it seems that there was an attempt on the Tower of London to remove the boys from the Tower. And so Richard clearly puts them in places where there can be no uprisings in their name from malcontents and people who are not happy in terms that Richard III is now king. But I think another part of that is a lot of historians in the past have said that Richard was an illegal king. And so a key line of investigation was looking at information in order to, to discover if that was the case. Was Richard an illegal king? But we've now found a dozen evidences which confirm that he was legal. He was the legal king. And this was accepted during his reign, not just in England, but in Europe as well. That's another important point, because you have to look at motive. Would Richard had a motive to murder the sons of Edward IV? So that removes that motive. But again, in terms of going into their present, killing children in those days, as in our time, was the most heinous crime. And you have to remember that in those days, they were highly religious times. God was real, hell was real, purgatory was real, your soul was real. So to murder children 
is something that would have been the most horrendous crime for anybody to hear about, but certainly in terms of your own soul. So it's not something that anybody would have taken on lightly in any way, shape or form. And I think I also looked at, you know, could the boys have been murdered by anybody else? But I could see no evidence for somebody who we could see showed signs of potentially being able to do such a crime, to murder children. Henry VII, Margaret of Burgundy. These are lots of names that have been thrown into the mix as as having murdered the princes because people have always begun with the basis that they were murdered. But again, you can see no evidence for that. I could find no evidence for anybody of that period wanting to murder children. I think the argument that's sometimes been put by historians is that, you know, deposed kings, that was often the precedent, was that they were killed and that Edward V, okay, he his coronation was postponed, but he was seen to be king. What would you say to that argument? Yeah, do you know, that's a really good argument. But again, they're not doing the forensic investigation and they're not going into their present. For example, I do that with Henry VI and show that there's absolutely no evidence that he was murdered. There's none, absolutely none. And that story is another story that started with Henry Tudor's invasion and the French Foreign Invasion Force. For example, there's a a chronicler called Domenico Mancini, who writes about 1483, and he writes about it in France on the 1st of December, 1483. He doesn't mention that Richard III murdered Henry VI. Now, he should have done, because he was trying to find anything he could against the Yorkist monarchs, so that should have been up there front and centre. But he doesn't mention it because nobody believed that. But I think, again, going back to, say, Edward II, again, everybody says that he was murdered with a hot poker. And this is the story. And this took place at Barclay Castle. But there's been a historian, Dr. Ian Mortimer, who's been doing the forensic investigation about this and looking into it. And you can see from Ian's research that it looks like Edward II was alive and well and living on the continent he'd been sent abroad because having him a king living while another king was on the throne was not useful and not conducive and I can go into an awful lot of detail about Richard II in this as well but I don't think we have the time but again you've got to think about their faith their religiosity at this time because you're asking people to kill an anointed monarch And you then have to think about how that impacts on their soul because they're killing God's anointed. And nobody is going to undertake that because of the impact it will have on their soul. Again, all of these things where people just say blithely, yes, because we always murdered anointed kings. Go into the forensics. Really think about what it is you're saying. Don't just repeat stories because people have always said it. We've had enough of repeat, repeat, repeat. And the idea that the princes survived, I mean, arguably, I know some historians feel that that hasn't been given enough attention or enough credibility in the past. Why do you think that is? Is it connected to that just repetition of received wisdom? Yeah, I do. I think that's part of it. Because once you have a famous writer telling you something, it's very rarely that people will question them and investigate what it is they've said. They will just repeat it. And, you know, you've got 
Shakespeare, telling us what this story was. Who's going to question Shakespeare? And in fact, I was talking to some Scottish historians and they were saying, well, Philippa, we don't go to Shakespeare's Macbeth to learn about Macbeth. We just don't. We go to the contemporary source materials about Macbeth in order to talk about this king. So we know that Shakespeare's made up a whole story around Macbeth. So clearly there's that. But there's also the the literary narrative of Thomas More, which specialists in Thomas More have now confirmed that it's a literary narrative. And Thomas More continually says throughout his narrative, this is what I've heard, this is what they've told me, this is what people are, are talking about. But again, Moore is another one who says, but I've also heard that they survived and that the common people talk about that they weren't murdered, but they lived. And what do we think now at this stage in the project is the most likely narrative for what happened to them that summer when they did survive? What do you think happened to the two princes at that point? I think for the younger prince, we now know what happened because he's told us. So we've got his narrative. For the older prince, we can see, obviously, he was definitely removed from the Tower of London on or by the 11th of August. He may have travelled with John Lord Howard and gone to Gipping in Suffolk, which is the home of Sir James Tyrrell. He may have gone to stay there for a while, or he may have gone to Francis Lovell's estate at Longendale in Lancashire, or he may have gone at some point to Barnard Castle in North Yorkshire. But I think one of the key points for me, because we've got this in a contemporary source from a Silesian knight who was at Richard III's court in early May 1484, from the 1st to the 5th of May 1484. His name was Nicholas von Poplo. And he tells us that at Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire in early May of that year, the king's children, who were bastards, and sons to the princes were kept there as strictly as you keep prisoners. So what he had heard is that the bastards, the royal bastards of York, were being kept at Pontefract Castle. So where I'm coming from right now is definitely Edward V was at Pontefract Castle for a period of time, and that's what Nicholas von Poplow had heard, is that the royal bastards were there. But what we also know, and again this comes from the law, it comes from a legal case, it tells us that King Edward came from Guernsey after the Battle of Bosworth and he went to Yorkshire, to Francis Lovell in Yorkshire, and then to Ireland. So this King Edward that we now know was Edward V, he had been expelled from his dominion sometime before Bosworth and was sent to the Channel Islands, to Jersey and Guernsey. But then with the death of Richard, the death of John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, he then went to Francis Lovell. So what happened to Richard that summer? So in terms of the younger son, we now have his account. So he was put on a ship by John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, and sailed to Bologna-sur-Mer. But then he was taken to Paris and stayed there for quite a while with the two Yorkist Ricardian retainers. They were called Thomas and Henry Percy. They looked after him. And he then travelled around sort of the Low Countries, northern France, and around that area for the next sort of 10 years with the Percy brothers. But then following the Battle of Stoke, when Edward V was defeated, he then sent the younger Percy brother, Thomas Percy, back to England to his mother, Elizabeth Woodville, to make sure that she knew that he was alive and that he was there 
and he sent her messages saying, this is me, and he sent her evidences of this is me and this is why you know it's me. So he sent Thomas Percy back to England and Percy seems to have stayed in England at this point. He didn't return. He went to Portugal with Henry Percy because Henry VII is now looking for this person and you can see that Henry's spies are being sent wherever this this young boy is, being sent to Portugal. But Henry Percy dies. And at that time, which is about 1490, when Henry Percy dies, he says, you have to go to Ireland because they will know you there. So Richard, Duke of York, travels to Ireland. And the reason that we now know that he was known there is we've now found a new discovery that tells us that the Richard, Duke of York, went to Ireland when he was about six because he'd just been made Lieutenant of Ireland. So the Earls of Kildare and the leading earls in Ireland would have met Richard, Duke of York, as a boy. It's very clear that when he goes to Ireland that they recognise him and say, you are the son of Edward IV. So, again, it's about the totality of evidences that we're now finding. And this is phase one of the project, but you have a phase two. What is that going to involve and what do you hope that that will find? What further evidence would you like, would you hope for? Phase one is completed. We now know that the boys survived. But phase two, we've got this big jigsaw and we have so many pieces of this jigsaw puzzle in place, but there's still key moments that we don't know. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know where they're buried. And I think this is what we're now looking into. We'd really like to see if we can tell the final part of their story and, if we can, to honour their final resting places of these young men, or potentially if they lived into old age, these these men who died in old age. So we hope we might be able to do that one day. How do you think your work will be received? I know that change is difficult. It's very difficult for people. These are big announcements. These are big discoveries. And we've been telling this same story for 500 years now. It's like with Richard III, the history books would say that he'd been thrown into the river saw. But we don't say that now because we now know that he wasn't. And I think it's the same with this. When we have evidence-based research, you can then hold an informed opinion. And I think I would just say, if you still want to believe the rumour hearsay and gossip that Richard murdered the princes and you want to ignore the evidences and the totality of evidences that we have found, I think I would just say, ask yourself why. Why you want to believe Shakespeare over contemporary evidences. Your work has taken you on quite a remarkable journey from being on TV yourself and your documentary to being played on film, obviously, to finding the final resting place of of Richard III. How has exploring all this history changed your life? It pretty much began because I got ill. I got seriously ill and I couldn't do a nine to five job anymore. And I needed something that interested me. I needed something new that I could do. And this period, the, the latter part of the Wars of the Roses, was such a, is such a fascinating period of history. I mean, hello, George R.R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones, you know. George absolutely realised that this was remarkable territory for stories. 
So I think researching this period of history has just been so interesting. But I think more than that is being doing the deep dive into the story and changing what we know. What I think is now needed is we now need to reassess the reigns of the Yorkist monarchs, particularly the, the, the later Yorkist monarch, Richard III, but also Henry VII, the early Tudor monarch. So there's two dynasties now that we now t- need to look into and reassess, Yorkist and Tudor, with everything that we now know. And I think from what the young historians are telling me when they get in touch, that they're very much looking forward to doing that. And again, to do all of the questioning. And so I think there's going to be a lot of discoveries to come. That was Philippa Langley, whose new book, The Princes in the Tower, Solving History's Greatest Cold Case, is out now from the History Press. You can also find out more about the story of the princes in the History Extra podcast series, The Princes in the Tower, A Medieval Murder Mystery available now on the History Extra website and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.